the human way of being in the world is in some sense technological. This is what we do. We extend ourselves into our environment. This is one of the reasons why we've been so successful as a species. The problem is Prometheus is a trickster god, right? There's this kind of irony built into human nature that the very thing that's like made us great is also going to be our own doing. But we can't just decide against human nature. So Heidegger thinks the saving power is only where the greatest danger is. We're going to, have to ride the death of God all the way down. Maybe as we hit technological rock bottom here and we see ourselves, our world as we know it, being undone by our own technological endeavors, that maybe that's the moment when we could actually listen to something besides our own technological obsessions, that we could actually hear some voice from the Umwelt that goes beyond just our insistence on dominating dominating. Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. So Justin and I recently spoke with James Madden, who is an author, educator, an athlete, um, and just an interesting guy. We spoke with him about his recent book titled Unidentified Flying Hyperobject, UFOs, Philosophy, and the End of the World, which, according to his website, is an application of the tools of academic philosophy to the UFO phenomenon. His central claim is that understanding the UFO requires a rethinking of ourselves and our standing in what is revealed as a much wider cosmos. Along the way, he addresses issues in the philosophy of mind, technology, religion, and the possibility of a re-enchantment of the world. So if you have any interest in those topics, you should definitely get the book. It boasts endorsements from Jeff Kripal, who uh, actually made the connection for us. Thanks, Jeff. And Diane Pasolka, who's somewhat famous, at least in those kinds of circles, for her book, American Cosmic. And uh, yeah, maybe we can get her on the show at some point, too. It'd be a lot of fun. I want to mention a couple other things that are going on. A few days ago, Justin and I met in the meet space at Drew University, where Trip Fuller and Tom Ward were putting on an event called God After Deconstruction. Uh, It was a lot of fun. So thanks, Tom and Trip, for the invite and for putting all that together. Um, It was also interesting. We got to meet a couple people who are in our Deleuze reading group. What's up, Alex? What's up, Rose? And um, yeah, I guess that's a pretty good segue to talk about This coming Monday is our second session of the Difference in Repetition Reading Group we're facilitating with the support of the Cobb Institute and the Center for Process Studies. This month, we'll be looking at Chapter 1, Difference in Itself. I'll link to where you can sign up for that in the show notes. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. All right, hope you enjoy our conversation with James Madden. My name is Jim Madden. I am a professor of philosophy at Benedictine College, and I'm the humanities research fellow at Ontocalypse Productions. And um, you know, I'm the author, most recently, of uh, Unidentified Flying Hyperobject, UFOs, Philosophy, and the End of the World, and also Thinking About Thinking, Mind and Meaning in the Era of Technological Nihilism. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking a little bit of time to come speak with us today. You are continuing a, a fun little substream of our podcast that I think began probably with Kripal, and then we did our, our positivism, and we've we've had this little kind of ufology substream here, uh, and it's it's really great to get your voice in here. I know that, as I was mentioning before we started the sort of recording proper, um, you're a voice that I'm really familiar with from the uh, UFO Rabbit Hole podcast with Kelly Chase. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you became involved in working with her to produce this book and some other projects as well. I first bumped into Kelly Chase in, there was a, there was an online course that Diana Pasolka was doing. 
And Diana asked me to come in for one of the sessions and, and talk about Plato stuff. And Kelly was in there and I was a fan of UFO uh, rabbit hole podcast. When I saw Kelly was in there, I kind of fanboyed her, right. You know, <laughs> and, and then um, a couple months later, she asked me if I'd want to be on her show. I think that first episode I did is where I sort of first developed the ideas that became central to the, to the UFO book that I wrote. And so I ended up doing several episodes and I, I told Kelly, I'd like to put some of these essays that I've been writing together in a book on this. I don't think it would work really well as an academic deal. Would you help me publish it through Ontocalypse, which is her production company? And she was all for it. Uh, and that's how it happened. Yeah. By the way, that Ontocalypse is a great title for anything. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. I mean, when, when Kelly said that was the name of her production company, I said, well, I, I really need to be a part of that. So let, let me insert myself into that somehow. Yeah. And so, um, and you know, Kelly and I, if, you, if you've listened to UFO Rabbit Hole, we riff really well. We kind of hive mind really well. That's awesome. Um, so you're fairly newish to the field of ufology, all things considered, right? Totally. Yeah. This is this is my first foray into it. You know, um, I didn't mention in the book that you know I'm, like I'm this. If you guys know me better, you'd realize I'm this like cliche Gen X guy. Okay. <laughs> right. I mean, so I graduated from high school in 1992. Right. So my senior year of high school was when Nirvana's Nevermind came out. Mm -hmm. so i'm i'm like the most I'm like the center of the gen x thing and and so of course when my, my kids were all teenagers uh i decided we had to show them the x-files i mean because this is part of their education and you know i had never had never really been into the ufo thing more than just pop culture and so it's the summer of what was it 2021 uh i'm watching the x-files with my kids and then suddenly that that pentagon briefing happens where the Pentagon say, yeah, it turns out there might be these things. We won't call them UFOs, we'll call them UAP. Uh, it turns out there's such things and we don't know what they are. And I remember thinking at the time, so, you know, it turns out Fox Mulder was right, you know, and, and like the, the Pentagon saying this. And so um, that got me to reading. You know, I started reading uh, very heavily in the field and I read Valet, uh, I read Pasulka, and I got to see that I think there's a there there too. Um, I do think there's something there. And then for me, you know, as a professional philosopher, I think, okay, so what can I contribute to the discussion? What trained philosopher do for this? And then, so then it began a project of writing about it. Yeah. yeah. And the, what you, you know, presented in the book is like this really interesting speculative, speculative and constructive proposal that I think is really interesting and we're going to get into it. But when you're talking about suspecting that there's a there there, I wonder about that sometimes. I, I'm not necessarily convinced one way or the other. And I know the starting point for your book is there is a there there, and it's not something that you kind of spend time with. But what would you say to folks who are, you know, maybe just feeling kind of very ambivalent about it? Why should they pay attention to this conversation? And what is the there that you want to sort of point people towards? So, okay, very good, Matt. Um, good question. So on the one hand, one thing I know, and I wish I actually had noted this in the book, even if there were no there, there, as it were, okay, I still think this would be a thought experiment that would be very, very helpful for our understanding the limits of our own cognition and the possibilities for ontology that we might be sort of binding ourselves to. So even if it turns out tomorrow, it's all revealed as a hoax, okay, I would still want to speculate in this area because I think it's revealing in what, in what it can show us. But it became clear to me once I started to see how much testimony there was about the UFO and how many people who were offering that testimony, you know, passed reasonable bars of reliability that I started to find it was, it was kind of hard for me to really persist in thinking that there was nothing to it. And the way I put it in, in the preface is, or I guess the introduction, is that I came to conclude that I had as good enough evidence for the UFO as I did that like bin Laden had been assassinated. You know what I mean? So, uh, and I'm not really doubting at all that bin Laden has been assassinated, but all I have on that is the testimony of seemingly reliable people. Okay. But, you know, David Fravor, you know, the fighter pilot and Alex Dietrich, the fire pilot, you know, who says they've seen the Tic Tac and they behave in these really, really strange ways, et cetera, et cetera. It, that's no different than the Navy SEALs whose books I've read that about killing bin Laden. Okay. So it seems to me, if I'm not running around radically doubting that they killed bin Laden, then I shouldn't be radically doubting that there's something like the UFO going on here, except for a kind of ontological bias that I might bring to it. And, and also it seemed to me that you had as good or better testimony in favor of the UFO as you do for any of the founding miracles of like the Western religions. Right. 
And I don't think the testimony for those can be easily dismissed. Okay. So I got to a point where I would say, I cannot rule it out. Right. And the more I looked in, the more I thought the grounds I have for ruling it in would be very similar to grounds of things I don't really question anyway. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that was one of the things I picked up on. I was like, I appreciate the way he's kind of maybe not bracketing out the phenomenological or the epistemological question, but maybe just subordinating it to this, like you say, the thought experiment of how can we think about this phenomenon ontologically in a different way that's not just like, you know, nuts and bolts, aliens running around or, or something else. Yeah. And, and actually, Matt, this is funny. Uh, literally, when I was walking up to the office to do this interview, I was thinking, you know, I think the next book should be on the epistemology of the issue. So, so, so Right, think, right. Like uh, a like, companion volume. Yeah, let's go ahead and let's run it past Hume's argument against miracles and dump it all in Bayes' theorem and see how it comes out. I think I think I'm going to do that for my next project. That's really interesting. And Matt, I noticed you you sort of hesitated. You almost said, instead of epistemological, you said phenomenological. Um, but that's actually kind of where my mind went in the sense that there's something profoundly phenomenological. I mean, often quite explicitly, you're citing Merleau-Ponty, you're citing a lot of Heidegger here. Um, but I think also in that broader sense of like the phenomenological bracketing, the phenomenological reduction, this idea of setting aside that that kind of metaphysical question of is it real or not, you know, in pretty heavy scare quotes, and instead just engaging with it as a as a phenomenon, right? It, we call it the phenomenon. And in many ways, you are, are treating that in a very literal sense. And I, I think there's something about this phenomenological approach that I think is particularly powerful for these kinds of questions. I'm working right now, for example, doing some uh, phenomenological work on, on synchronicity. And what I find really interesting there is this idea that, that with phenomenology, I get to set aside like this question of like, is it real or is it like, quote, in our heads? Like that question, I can just simply set that aside. Uh, and not only Am I allowed to set it aside? In many ways, I am methodologically required to set it aside. And I, I, it seemed to me that there was something sort of similar happening in, in your phenomenological or at least quasi-phenomenological approach to this question. Does that seem right? Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right in a lot of ways. And, you know, I also want to note there's a, there's a phenomenological strain to this for me in the book. And there's also a Nietzschean strain to it, too, Yep. in that, like any religious claim— <laughs> Okay, no, I will put these into, into the category of religious claims. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of subterfuge and deception and, and you know, monkeying with how we're going to interpret things that's in play here. And, you know, one of the things that you'll, if you read Valet, if you actually read Valet, you read the full scope of what he writes. For instance, his book, Messengers of Deception, in that book, Valet is saying most of what you hear about this is a put up. Okay, like you, like you, you're being dominated by a certain kind of narrative that's associated with this, right? And he goes through some of the most famous cases, and shows how, how shows you how he thinks those are psyops all the way down. Uh, I think it's important because when as soon as you bring up, you know, I'm, I'm looking into the UFO, I'm looking into the phenomena, people immediately go, little green men, aliens, you know, nuts and bolts. Which look, that's to be taken in by a certain narrative about this. So I think to get anywhere with this is we want to have to have very good Nietzschean, Freudian, Marxist suspicion that we bring to it, okay? We, we need a hermeneutic suspicion that comes first, and that's going to require a serious phenomenological bracketing, okay? So there's this experience we have of it, or there's there's this after-the-fact interpretation that is done of the phenomenon, right? Okay, but that we can't really trust because like people have intentionally, it seems, muddied those waters. So now we have to now be good phenomenologists and just put that aside and then just look at what are people actually reporting to experience here, right? And then see if we can move from that pure experience of it to something like claiming it's vertical or not. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. And and it's funny, you you bring up the Nietzsche and, and you can add to that, you know, the whole part one is really centered around Aristotle, Plato as well, but, but Aristotle plays a particularly prominent role. And when you take these together, right, Aristotle plus Nietzsche plus phenomenology, right, you end up with Heidegger. Uh, and I have, um, in past conversations, I've referred to your work uh, together with uh, Diana Pasolka's work as representing something like a Heideggerian turn in ufology. Uh, and I wonder, would that be, would you embrace that that descriptor that I, I sort of stuck on you as as representing something of a Heideggerian turn in this research? hundred uh, percent. That's that's. I think that's much of what I'm trying to achieve in unidentified flying hyperobjects is like a turn towards Heideggerian approaches and really 
object-oriented ontology, which which grows out of the Heideggerian business. Okay. Um, one of the things that got me into this is at the time I began this book, I was in the process of finishing a book on philosophy of mind and cognitive science stuff. And the stance I take on philosophy of mind and cognitive science is, is very much influenced by Heidegger. So I saw those tools as having like really good traction to help make sense of things in the discussion of the UAP or the UFO. So, yeah, I think you could like interpret the book as me attempting to take the, the tools of Heideggerian philosophy, phenomenology, and like how it's used by cognitive scientists like Andy Clark and apply it to this issue and show that it can actually bake some bread for us here. Yeah. So I wonder if at this point, maybe we should, uh, we've been kind of talking around your book, if maybe we should, we should delve a little bit more intentionally into it. So uh, for our audience, um, your book is titled The Unidentified Flying Hyperobject, UFOs, Philosophy, and the End of the World. And it's uh, it's a really interesting book. Um, before, actually, maybe I, I just said we we're going to dive into the content, but maybe before we get into the content, I'm really interested in how you think about the audience that this book is intended for. Like, who's it written to? Because there's um, uh, it's actually readable, unlike most philosophy, which is really nice. Um, it's a very accessible book, and there's there seems to be kind of a couple things happening at once that you're putting forward your own kind of distinct ufological position. So we'll talk about that Uber Umwelt uh, terrestrial hypothesis moving forward. Um, but there's also seems to be a way where it almost feels like a, a, a philosophy primer for people who are already well-versed in UFOs in some ways. Yeah, I, you really understand my game. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I'm, you know, I, I'm a teacher, right? I mean, that's how, you know, I, I teach a four, four load at a, at a small liberal arts college. Okay. So I, really make my living teaching. And so what do I see my role here to do is to take ideas that would normally be unavailable, right? And make them available to, to, to people for whom they might do some good. And and I, and I want to be careful here. You know, I'm, I'm not saying ufology needed the academics to come in and like clean things up because they were messing it up without us. I, I, I don't want to I don't want to say that. Okay. <laughs> the philosophy stamp of approval. Yeah. Okay. Like, oh, like, like, okay. Thanks for your work, guys. The, the professionals are here, you know, get out of the way. Okay. But I will say this is I do think ufology could use some good conceptual rigor and some good methodological rigor. Okay. And I think they, it, it, need, it needs to be done natural scientifically, but I also think it needs to be done in the humanities and the social sciences too. So the first priority of the book is I, I want to teach ufology some philosophical methodology that might help things along. All right. And I, I'm trying to say that with all humility, though. All right. But secondly, yeah, I and I do think once you have those tools, it does lend itself to this one hypothesis that I'm pushing in the book, which I do say it's a hypothesis. It's something I'm floating. Because the more important thing for me in the book is the methodological lessons. That that all tracks with what I read. And I would imagine it would be helpful for someone in um within the discourse of ufology, who is looking to find some sort of philosophical underpinnings to kind of hang their, hang that discourse on, so to speak. And can I, can I go back to one, one of the points, because Justin, you asked, uh, of who, course. Is, who is the audience? Well, one, it's ufology, maybe in need of some new tools. Also, my, like, this one is, I was so glad when you guys contacted me, because I also want to make ufology available to a more academically formally trained audience uh, by showing, look, like the like this isn't all just wild speculation that these people are up to, right? This is something that can can be given real rigor, and we can like understand it in our academic language. And so, basically, like like you two are part of the audience that I would hope to reach with the book too. Yeah, and certainly, whereas you know, a lot of times we focus on you know theological concerns, perhaps, and maybe this would be a little bit more closer to like a religious studies or something like that. I think there are those kinds of resonances that are, I mean, the, the questions there are no less um, interesting, urgent, um, compelling, I think. But as far as the, to, to set some groundwork for your project, you had to do quite a bit of work in the book, creating a sort of backdrop for different ways that the, uh, the phenomenon has been described, understood, explained. And that was really actually helpful for me because I'm not someone who's very familiar with that kind of stuff. And I imagine some of our audience would be in that same camp. So I was just wondering, this might be a little bit remedial, but if you could give us that background for what you want to do with it, like the different hypotheses. Sure. I think there's sort of three 
basic hypotheses about the UFO. Okay. There's the standard extraterrestrial hypothesis that these are some kind of organism or some kind of artificial intelligence flying in nuts and bolts machines that have come from other planets, you know, other galaxies to the earth. Okay. They're literally extraterrestrial. So, and this is, this is the lore, right? This is the popular lore. When I say UFO, people think extraterrestrial. That's one hypothesis, right? Another hypothesis is some version of what's called ultra terrestrials, where whatever these things are, they are from the earth. Okay. They're either a breakaway civilization of human beings who have been hoarding technologies for, for hundreds of years and uh, sort of exist in the shadows. They're another species of animal that evolved on the earth, right? That uh, has, has gained technological power and is you know existing in the shadows. Recent versions of this, there's someone, uh, a guy named Mike Masters, who's an anthropologist, who argues that these could well be, he calls them extra tempestrials, that they're humans from the future who have mastered time travel and have come back in order to, uh, you know, observe or, or manipulate things, right? Okay, so those are all species of what's called ultra-terrestrial hypotheses. And then you have, you know, basically sort of psychoanalytic hypotheses or Jungian collective unconscious hypotheses, where the idea is that what people are experiencing in the UFO is something like, like a Jungian daemon, right? You know, where you have like an archetype that's taken on a concrete, a gentle form, right? So it's really our own projection that's sort of like becoming real in the world, okay? And like Carl Jung actually did entertain something like this when it came to the UFO. And you can find famous examples of all of these. Now, going with both the extraterrestrial and the ultra-terrestrial hypotheses, I think there's a, there's a shared problem there, okay? Because they both create the need to add very, very probabilistically expensive explanations in order to make sense. So you say there's extraterrestrials that have come to the Earth. Okay, now you've got to, though, posit on their part a technological capability to get here. So you've just beefed up the hypothesis in terms of what's being claimed, which is then going to require more evidence to support it. Do you see that? So the more complex yeah. the hypothesis gets, the more evidential drag it's going to be. So you, know, you got to like make them very technologically savvy. Okay, fair enough. But then also there's this odd thing that people report these beings to be bipedal and to have eyes in the front of their head. And so it looks, they, they seem to look a lot like us, but there's nearly no reason to think an animal that evolved on a planet is going to look like us in any way, shape, or form. So now you've got to explain that. Well, is, are you going to say like evolution just pipelines towards bipedal animals in the front of the head or eyes in the front of the head? Once again, you're, what's happening? It, it, the hypothesis is getting more expensive. It's getting more expensive, getting more expensive. Well, maybe be easier to uh, then say, no, they're, they're ultra terrestrial because that would make sense of why they kind of look like us. But then you're going to have to like explain how this like industrial civilization that we're not privy to exists on the earth somehow and we're not noticing it. Do, do you see that? Hollow Earth is back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hollow Earth, all this stuff. It's, yeah. Yeah, you and I are right to snicker at that because what's happening, you're like, it's sort of like, it's like, it's Russell's uh, teapot. You've heard of this, you know, where Bertrand Russell says, you say that there's a teapot orbiting the earth. Well, but we don't see it in the telescopes. Well, because it's invisible, right? Well, you know, how come, you know, it never spills? Well, it can't turn or something. Like you can always make up something to support the hypothesis, right? And Russell uses this to object to belief in God, right? It seems like no matter what evidence you have against it, a theist can sort of adjust in order to like, like account for that evidence. If there's no limit to the hypothesis, it becomes trivial. And so I think like with both the ultra-terrestrial and the extraterrestrial, it seems like they're either going to get so probabilistically heavy or they're going to become so ad hoc as to become trivial. So I think that's a problem for these, both, both of these views. Um, and so what I'm trying to do in the book, on the speculative part of the book, is to come up with a hypothesis that doesn't have that problem, okay, that doesn't require us to posit a whole bunch of special powers on the side of these things that we would not expect to find in nature. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic primer on the, the background of all that. I guess the next step to my way of thinking is this idea of the Umwelt or the life world. I suppose, why not take a sort of linear approach to this? Because um, I think the argument you, you lay out in the book is very linear, and that's one of its strengths, is that it stacks up. You're right, man. I'm trying to do like a cumulative case kind of thing, right? Yeah. Okay, so the Umwelt. You guys are, are familiar with some basic phenomenology stuff. You're probably familiar with some of this, but... 
you know, Umwelt in German, right, would be literally the around world. Okay. Uh, it gets translated into English as environment, which is fine, but I worry about that a little bit. I think that could throw us off a little, right? And because given like environment has connotations, I think different for us. But you see it in early 20th century behavioral biology, the notion of Umwelt. You see it in phenomenology, uh, especially in Heidegger, right? He talks about the environment, the Umwelt of something. Okay. And the best way I've heard it explained, it's an example um, that Andy Clark takes from some of the early biology. So the example that, that Clark takes is there's a certain kind of tick. And this tick really has only three senses. It only has three access points to the world. Okay. It can um, sense the amount of mammalian skin acid in its vicinity, the density of it in, in its environment, right? It can sense heat differences on the surfaces of things, and it can feel the tension of something stretched across the surface. And with just those three access points to the world, uh, the tick can time its jump on you so that it can find the vein very easily and go in and like you know stick in its you know its proboscis and, and drink your blood. Okay. But that's all it has, right? That's it. And, and so its entire world, its environment, right? The world that it structures for itself consists entirely of skin acid, heat differences, and tension differences. That's it. Okay. That's its world. Interestingly, we don't have any of those senses, basically. Like we can't visualize heat differences or, you know, from a distance and all that. Okay. But that's what the tick has. Now, now note, those things are really in the environment. The tick is getting things right, but it's getting things right as a caricature, right? It's getting a small cutout of the total being available uh, because it has a strategy for getting around in the world, right? It, in its umwelt, right? It creates an umwelt that it can get around in based on these three factors that it has access to. And those factors like evolved in conversation with the world. So right now, the tick in its relation to you, um, it would get you right. It would get your skin acid right. It would get the surface you know, temperature of your skin right. It would get the tension of your skin right. But it's getting a, a gross simplification of you. But that's enough. All right. And the, the point then is, though, is we're no different from the tick, right? We have certain senses and we have a rational faculty that's built out of those senses. But those senses are, in fact, simplifications. Like we are, can only cognize in as much as we limit what we're cognizing about, right, based on what's available to us from our access points into the world. And so our umwelt is itself a caricature, a simplification of the total being that's available out there, right? And when we encounter the tick, we are no less simplifying or caricaturing the tick than the, the tick is simplifying or caricaturing us. That's the thesis that I'm pushing here. And so if that's the case, then it would not be entirely surprising if there are things that are at the periphery of what we are evolved to perceive that we might occasionally bump into that make no damn sense to us whatsoever, right? So if we have an umwelt, and I think the case that we have one is 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 very good, then there's a vast uber umwelt, uh, you know, an above, a super beyond the uh, environment of stuff out there. And it might be that occasionally we get ourselves into relations with things that we were not really set up to be in. And those things show up for us in like foggy, indeterminate ways that we're not set up to understand. And they would be uncanny. We might even say they're alien. Okay, so you can see where this is going is I think once you take this turn into the kind of phenomenology that's built around this, you should not be surprised that the world is surprising. Uh, you should not be surprised that there are things that people run into uh, that don't make sense to us. And so that once again, like I'm, this is not just about the UFO. It, I think it becomes a grand theory of the weird. Uh, and I'm just using the UFO as a case here. By the way, grand theory of the weird will be the title of this episode. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> we, might, we might need to like, you know, trademark that some of those hats, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah that's, we that's own it. The, the next step up from uh, what is it, unified theory of the paranormal? Is that the the yeah, keel yeah. term? Yeah, I say that actually. I am kind of curious. Um, the one piece that I was surprised to not see in, in here was Keel's eighth tower. 
Um, yeah. And I wonder to, to what extent you have engaged with his arguments on, I don't, if you're familiar with the Eighth Tower, uh, for, for the audience who might not be, it's this text where uh, John Keel, really important um, ufologist, historical ufologist, most famous for writing the Mothman Prophecies, a really weird book that's even weirder than the movie, um, but is really fun. Uh, he wrote this, this, I guess it was kind of a sequel to that called The Eighth Tower, which is all about his hypothesis that what we experience as paranormal phenomena might be beings, creatures, whatever, something that simply exists outside of the band of the electromagnetic spectrum that we're able to see and hear, uh, and that they might just, you know, sort of be too high or too low on that spectrum or whatever, uh, which in some ways it feels like pretty similar. So I, I wonder if this was something that you've engaged with and if you see differences between his proposal and your proposal, if you see some sort of a resonance there. Along with that, I don't know, for some reason, I'm thinking of Kant here, who, you know, famously puts limits on knowledge to make room for faith. And I think there's a certain kind of resonance there. So, yeah, anything in what Justin or I (laughs) were putting forward there. So, okay, I'm actually glad you brought the Kant thing up, too. So this is great. So let let me do John Keel first, and we'll come to Kant, right? The the two great Ks to talk about, right? Um, I have not read The the Eighth Tower. I've read um, Mothman, and I've read uh, Operation Trojan horse by keel and uh he floats that same hypothesis in operation trojan horse too okay and and so i think keel and i are in the same ballpark with but i think there's a very important qualification keel still wants to account for these beings as existing in a sort of an electromagnetic bandwidth right right he's still looking at them in terms of human techno science and human techno science is no less a caricature of our umwelt than anything else. Okay. So I'm kind of showing my, my anti-realist cards here in, in a way. So I think actually Keel doesn't really understand his own hypothesis well enough that as soon as you admit we're carving things out, you can't then say, oh, our science extends beyond our carve out, right? Even though science is part of the carve out. Okay. And so it may be these things, you know, the, the idea that they existed like an electromagnetic bandwidth that's beyond our normal ken, it doesn't go far enough. Oh, like our access to the very notion of electromagnetism still comes back to ultimately a verification in our five senses, and thereby it's a caricature of the world. Did you see my point? I find this really interesting yeah. because I think in many ways your critique that you just leveled at keel here would fit really well with certain wings of the speculative realist movement i think importantly and interestingly and probably not coincidentally not the two that you engage most heavily with which would be Harmon and morton but particularly i'm thinking of of quentin Mayasu and uh ray brassier where both of them they want to be like we're going to get outside of the human and the anthropological and yet they constantly are insisting that like the human constructs of math and science are able to to get back, and they never are willing to take that additional step beyond those epistemological structures of science. Yeah, it's this assertion that the uber umbelt must be thinkable to us. That's like how Milosu will put it. It must be thinkable to us. I mean, and, and and like I'm begging the question against his incredible argument to that effect. But but you can see, I'm but I'm also departing. I'm coming over with Harmon and Morton here. Right? It doesn't have to be thinkable to us. And in fact, to call it the uber umbelt is to say it isn't. But also, this doesn't make me, and I nor like the triple O people that I'm sort of following on here, and this goes to, the, the, to Matt's Kantian point, that doesn't commit us to some kind of anti-realism. Okay, so in this sense, I mean, it's anti-realism of sort, but like the things that show up in our umwelt are really there. I mean, there's no reason to say they aren't really there. It's just the point that there's always more there to things than what shows up in our umwelt. So I think you can take the turn that I'm taking with the triple O people and say, you know, I'm holding a pen right now for the listeners, right? And I can say, no, there's really a pen here. It's really black. Okay. It has all these properties. Great. But those are accessed only because we've greatly simplified things. And there's probably this, who knows what this pen really is. It withdraws from our umwelt. It's in the Uber umwelt. Okay. Uh, But that doesn't mean that the part of it that shows up to us in the umwelt isn't really there. Theory of the weird, 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 weird
wonder if at this point it would be worth bringing the second piece, because at least the way that I understand your the articulation of your argument, it's really centers on bringing together the notion of the umwelt together with the notion of the hyperobject. So I wonder if you could introduce uh, Timothy Morton's notion of the hyperobject and the way that you're applying it here to the phenomenon. So, okay, and this is me being kind of snotty to ufology in that, you know, I, I argue, like, so what, what's the problem with the extraterrestrial hypothesis, okay, really? What's the problem with standard versions of the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis? Because you can see how my my thing would be a kind of ultra-terrestrial hypothesis. Like, yeah, there's things in our, like, beyond our environment that are right here with us. Maybe they always have been. They just, they extend beyond our caricatures of them. And, and sometimes we get a little more than we bargained for. So what's the problem with, with both the standard ultra-terrestrial hypothesis and any extraterrestrial hypothesis? It's that it's taking what I call our Goldilocks ontology at face value and uh, borrowing a, fr- a famous phrase from a 20th century analytic philosopher named Austin. We tend to think of the world in terms of middle-sized dry goods, right? And, and the example I use in the book is if I asked one of my sons, Cormac, to go out and count the things in the backyard, you know, he would probably come back and say, you know, there's a, there's a lawnmower out there and his brother's pushing the lawnmower and there's a fence and there's some, you know, balls in the yard and there's a grill and these things, but he wouldn't mention like the electrons, right? Uh, And he wouldn't mention, say, the power company that owns the power lines. He wouldn't mention the block association that's holding the party that's leading his brother to cut the lawn, right? We, We tend to think ontologically in terms of the sort of medium sized objects that we can get our hands on and work on practically. All right. And so the, the object oriented ontology you know, wants to argue that we need to guard ourselves against that Goldilocks ontology. So on the one hand, they'll, they'll agree we shouldn't undermine it because like the, the scientific realist is going to say, no, the, what's in the backyard is just a bunch of electrons, period, full stop. Okay. And they want to eliminate the boy and the lawnmower for the electrons that compose them. Okay. And, and I think to that, there's like this sort of very good, I think, you know, reply from the Aristotelian, which is to say, well, wait, the objects, the middle-sized objects do have properties that are not had by their composing parts, right? And they do have powers that are not had by their composing parts. And they exert a sort of control over their composing parts. So it seems like by any reasonable standard, no, you've got to say the lawnmower is real, even though it's composed of the electrons, right? The boy is real, even though he's composed by the electrons. So fair enough, right? So uh, you can like we're going to defend the middle-sized dry goods from elimination, but to their parts, okay. But and this is where I think like Grant Harmon is really brilliant, all right. And he'll say, well, wait, take the example of his I like to use is is he says you know take any Pizza Hut restaurant, so you've got some people that can help compose it, right? You've got some equipment that helps compose it. You've got customer, you have workers, you have customers, you have equipment, right? You know maybe currency ingredients, all these things, you get them together and you get in the right arrangement, you get a Pizza Hut. But Harmon will point out to you is, well, the Pizza Hut restaurant has properties none of those things have. Like none of those things can make pizza outside of that context. It has persistence conditions that go beyond just its its member parts, right? So all the people that work there, all the equipment could be replaced over several years. You'd still have the same Pizza Hut restaurant. And it exerts a kind of control over the people that are there. Like people behave differently when, when they're at Pizza Hut than they're not at Pizza Hut. So Harmon says, look, Pizza Hut is no less an object than the lawnmower or the boy pushing the lawn. He thinks it's an object and it has autonomy from its parts, no less than those other things. And then Harmon will say, but wait, what about the Pizza Hut Corporation? Same argument is going to apply to the Pizza Hut Corporation. It has its own persistence conditions. It has properties that its parts don't have. It has control over its parts to some degree. Even the CEO of Pizza Hut behaves differently because of the corporation, right? He's not utterly autonomous from the corporation, right? And so Harmon say, it looks like the corporation is an object of its own. So what Harmon does with Triple O, and I think this is really brilliant, is now suddenly the universe is populated with all sorts of levels of objects. And he thinks they're all on par. Okay, that that you can't say one's more real than the other because the, the same argument that defends the middle side dry goods from elimination is going to defend all these other much bigger scaled things. Okay, right. It's like an extension of the flat ontology. 
That's what I was going to go the exact same way. It's this, it's this weird situation where it's a hyper-layered ontology, and yet it's a flat ontology because they all have the same sort of ontological, I guess, value. I don't really know what would be the right all term object, All objects are equal, right? And when I, one of the things I find about Brilliant, brilliant with, with Harmon is he uses like the most boring old guy ever, Aristotle, to make this case, right? He's basically just extending the argument of book two of Aristotle's physics, where Aristotle defends the integrity of middle-sized objects. And but Harmon's saying, okay, that's great, Aristotle, I agree with you, but it's got you got to go all the way now. And all these things are going to be included. And like Harmon likes the example of civil war. I think this is interesting. Okay. I don't know if you've seen he he has a book that came out just last year on archaeology. It's it's really brilliant. You guys should do a, a show on it, right? It's okay, cool. cool. Not to tell you your business, right? But, no, um, great. I, I always like a good book recommendation. Yeah. But anyway, okay. So, so now Tim Morton. Morton building on Harmon's triple O. Morton's an ecological thinker. And Morton takes this idea of the object, right, in Harmon's sense. And he starts thinking, well, wait, isn't the environment then something like an object in Harmon's sense, right? It's a systematic whole. It has downward effects on its composing parts, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, yeah, right? Morton will point out all the plastic in the world uh, seems to be having effects novel, right? Compared to its parts, it seems to be on its own in some ways. It's beyond our control, et cetera, et cetera. And so Morton starts looking for objects in this ecological context. And he notices, like, for instance, um, the environment, that is an object so vast that we only see it at its very edges. Like we see this or that storm. We see this or that glacier but we don't have a take on the whole thing right we just get like where it dips its toe into the umbelt it vastly outstrips what we could possibly understand this is one of the things i find really helpful but also challenging about the hyper objects is the sort of the temporal nature of it right because it's not just you know about scaling up or down when you're talking about the environment it's not you know what the weather is right now how long has it been been here? I mean, it's it, so I think that's really helpful to think about. Can I, can I riff uh, on that a little bit? Yeah, go for it. So uh, have you seen, there's a documentary called Living in the Future's Past. It's an environmental documentary. It's, it's uh, like, I think it was produced and it's narrated by Jeff Bridges, the actor, and Morton's in it. I think Tim had a, an important role in bringing it about. It's really brilliant. And because they make the case um, that, you know, look, human beings were basically evolved, right, as hunter-gatherers. We were set up originally to, like, operate on a time scale, thinking, like, maybe 12 hours into the future. And thinking in, uh, on a spatial scale of, you know, just a few miles, like, how far could I walk, right, this morning to find the berries? So we, we were set up to operate a fairly constricted time and space package. That's our natural umbel. But now what have we done? Our food now presupposes a global system of trade and the documentary comes up again and again right you know that our transportation presupposes a global system we're, we're we're doing things that have consequences this is an example that morton uses what is it like any radioactive waste that we produce today it's going to take what is it like forty thousand years into the future before that stuff isn't dangerous anymore well if you run that back in the past you're going back to the earliest cave drawings by human beings so we're doing things that are going to like have effects for as long as there have been distinctively humankind on the earth already. So, so what we've done is we've gotten ourselves involved in systems that far outstrip anything that a human being can concretely understand. And that applies to like our economies, our systems of agriculture, our energy systems, all that. And so the idea is like we are over our heads now. Like the objects that are running things now are beyond our kin. They're hyper objects. There's a sense in which Prometheus is a real dude, right? He's, right. he's, he's a hyper object that's emerged from a, something that we've done and something else that was out there that we never understood. And now those things are a systematic whole that runs beyond our kin. Call it the UFO, if you will.
So we now have the notion of the Umfeld on the table, and we have the notion of the hyperobject. So what is your UUTH uh, proposal, this alternative that you're constructing? Uh, could you kind of land that plane for us? Yes, that's good. Yeah, so the first thing I would say is, is it surprising to us that we would encounter things that are uncanny to us if we understand the notion of the Umwelt and what I say is the entailment of it, of the Uber Umwelt? My answer to that question is no. We would actually expect the unexpected. We would expect that occasionally we bump into things that make no sense to us because we're, we're always dealing with a caricature. That makes my hypothesis a lot less evidentially expensive, Right. Like we wouldn't necessarily expect to bump into extraterrestrials. We wouldn't necessarily expect to bump into ultra-terrestrials in the standard version. But would we expect, given this like well-tested notion from phenomenology and cognitive science, I think, yeah, in fact, we would expect that. Okay. So so what I'm doing now is I'm like, I'm helping the probability claim here. You, you see what I'm saying? What is the UFO? What is a ghost? <laughs> what is you know, a werewolf, what, anything, these things that people report and maybe have evidence regarding that, I'm saying it's an encounter with something just over the edge of what the human perceptual apparatus was evolved to do. And we expect there to be such things. That's not to say I'm saying they're werewolves, but I'm saying uncanny things that we're going to interpret after the fact are going to show up for us. Okay. So that's, that's point one. And I think it, it's a less probabilistic expensive hypothesis than anything else that's trying to account for the, for weird things. Two, given the notion of a hyper object, we would think now that there are vast systems of things operating in the Uber Umbelt, okay? And even technological systems. Like, so think of it like our economy is ultimately a technological system, right? That's a hyperod. We don't really understand our own economy. Like, who really does understand the economy as a whole? Uh, we're, we're always like one step behind it. Who really understands? Does anybody hold like the global food distribution system in their heads all at once? Probably not. It's up and running. It's on its own now. And so I think what, what I'm getting at here is as we've like operated on the scale that we weren't set up to do, we're bumping into things that maybe we weren't supposed to bump into in the first place. And they're mixing in these Latourian hybrids now in systematic ways. And so now could things, even technological things, be showing up in our environment as part of these hyper objective systems? Yes, I think they could. It's speculative, but I think they could. Yeah, and I think if there's a plausibility there that really comes through. And then something that was really interesting to me was when you were talking about Valet's control hypothesis and how that sort of maps onto your work, because that kind of blew my mind. I, I didn't know that that was a thing. That that idea just to me is like so bizarre. I love it. <laughs> I'm not sure what to. I'm not sure what to do with it. I know. Yeah. So when I, when I first read uh, Valet's control hypothesis, I had the same, same reaction. I'm like, that's an incredible idea. And I thought I need to think this through. I need, I need to figure out like how we can do something with that philosophically. Cause it's, it's a brilliant idea. Okay. So Valet's control hypothesis is in, in the invisible college, which I think is sort of Valet's real most important work. He studiously will not ontologize the UFO any more than just to say, whatever it is, it's a control mechanism. It's a control mechanism. So it seems what Valet is saying there is the UFO is a systematic entity. It's a system of control. Now, but keep in mind, an organism is a system. M my organism is no part of me. It's the systematic whole, right, uh, that controls all the parts, okay? It's an emergent entity. So what I hear when Valet says the the UFO is a control system is I start to think of it. Yeah. It's like an organism. It's like an organism of which we are composing parts in the same way. Really the economy is sort of like an organism, right? It's a systematic whole uh, that we compose, right? And our actions are both contribute to it up, but also it controls down. And that's how I've come to think, you know, what of Valet's control hypothesis, right? There's some kind of system that we're in, that seems to manage itself, right, like an organism, uh, by introducing mythological content or subtracting mythological content, right? This is because Valet talks about how he thinks that phenomenologically, you know, the UFO is very similar to the to the medieval fairy, which is very similar to certain ancient things. So what do you have? You have a sort of regulation of what's going on on our level 
by the introduction of myths throughout history in much the way like an organism would try to achieve homeostasis. Um, and so then that, that, that sounds a lot to me, something like a hyper object that we've been a partial comp component of for a very long time. Yeah. And it's, one of the ways that Morton talks about the hyper object, which really stood out for me and, and was helpful for me is he says the sum is always less than its parts. Yes. Yes. Which is, I think, a, a, a brilliant way of describing There's what, more you were just, what you were just talking about. So one thing that stuck out to me, um, so you said you, you listened to a little bit of our podcast, so you, you might know that um, monotheism remains sort of our perpetual whipping boy. Um, so one of the things I noticed was that you talked about the hyper object of the, the UFO. And so you posit this notion of what if all of these are sort of the fringes and the edges of, of a single, you know, like a single hyper object. And so I'm wondering why you go that direction rather than the direction of, you know, why, not, why a control system and not control systems or why a hyper object instead of hyper objects? Yeah, I guess I think you get, you get my point. Why the singularity at that point in your argument? That that's probably more rhetorical than anything, right? <laughs> you know, because like you think of it in the in the chapter on Aristotle, you know, I talk about how Aristotle sees the universe as these sort of this interlocking set of hierarchies, you know, run by a sort of like like a desire from the bottom to the top. And so I'm kind of reinterpreting, redescribing Aristotle in a way similar to this, that you know, maybe Although, like, I think it would be it would be a lot messier than Aristotle's universe. But yeah, maybe the universe is just a bunch of over, maybe not interlocking, but overlapping hyperobjective realities. So I think the economy is a, a hyperobject. I think the environment's a hyperobject. Right? I think the the food system's a hyperobject. Um, probably, you know, the college I work for is probably a hyperobject. No one's really running that thing, right? Um, in the in the UFO, I'm proposing maybe a hyper object and i think yeah there could be all sorts of overlapping hyper objects and those hyper objects themselves could be entering into compositions that are like forming higher level hyper objects and harman has a line and it's in Toolby, and it's in his first book where he says you know like this this way of looking at things in terms of object-oriented ontology releases a thousand gods again into the forests and and you can see what i'm saying here is that yeah it seems that Reality has become very, very rich, right? And there could be all sorts of overlaps among these objects, and they could be in all sorts of competition, both in harmony and in conflict, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think this only makes our picture of things rather messy. And like it doesn't you, it doesn't necessarily get a nice, neat structure to it. Yeah, there's a there's a slipperiness to the edges in that kind of ontological vision that I think for a lot of people, they find just very maddening for, for the reason you described, right? It's hard to really sort of pin anything down. When you talk about the economy, what are you really talking about, right? Ultimately, if you go far enough, you're talking about everything. You yeah. Know? But I, I think the re-enchantment of the world is kind of fun. <laughs> I, absolutely. Uh, and, and not and as I, complicated as, as people maybe think it needs to be. Right. right. This is this is one of the, the, the things that I, you know, and a lot of the triple O people, don't like Merleau-Ponty, and I think that's a mistake, okay? I think it's actually just in his essay, The Primacy of Perception, where he talks about the object can always surprise us, right? It can always surprise us. We're never done seeing what can be seen in the object. That's really I, one of the things I'm hoping people will take away from this book is like being open to being surprised. There's some scary stuff here too. We're being dominated maybe, but also there's more out there. Right. And we could be surprised by things in really interesting ways again. What was that quote again? Uh, I think it's in the, in the primacy of perception where um, Merleau Ponty says the object can always surprise us. The object of perception can always surprise us. Yeah, I like that. It brought to mind Spinoza, right? Like we, we, yeah. we do not yet know what a body can do. It's a yeah, exactly. Sort of thing. Exactly. Similar, similar idea. I know we're approaching uh, near the end of our time. Uh, so I thought maybe we could 
end our discussion with a little discussion of the end of the world. So the subtitle of the book is UFOs, Philosophy, and the End of the World. And your final section really brings Jacques Vallée in conversation with various um, kind of apocalyptic themes. And so I, I wondered if you could just kind of pull out what this notion of the end of the world and the apocalyptic, why these apocalyptic valences um, appear at the end of, of your text and what exactly they're doing there. Yeah. And yeah, so I appreciate that. And, and uh, I think people have missed this part of the book. And I'm glad to bring it up. What do we mean by the end of the world? Uh, or what do I mean? by? Okay, what I mean by the end of the world is the end of our phenomenological. That chapter, I talk quite a bit about um, the Manhattan Project and the introduction of nuclear weapons, okay, which, of course, proposes the possibility of a literal physical end to life on the planet. Um, but I think more importantly, the introduction of the atomic bomb wrecked the world in, a, in another sense, in that it wrecked the entire meaning structure that made sense of things for us. Okay. And I interpret Jacques Vallée in many ways as being concerned with a similar sort of phenomenological apocalypse coming to us through our being dominated by the hyper object that is digital technology. And so when I'm talking about the end of the world there, I mean, yeah, I mean, we may blow ourselves up, right? Famously, we may wreck the planet environmentally so that it can't sustain at least our lives anymore. But also it seems that valet associates the UFO with this other sense that we're going to undo ourselves as thinking, feeling human beings by our obsessions with digital technology. And it's interesting that the, the, the UFO conversation is whipping up at the same time as our conversation about artificial general intelligence is whipping up. The anxieties we're having about artificial intelligence and about what will be left of human meaning after like we're, we're essentially become obsolete compared to our machines is correlating with the UFO. Okay. And what I'm doing there is I'm, I'm interpreting the UFO in a sort of a sense of the later Heidegger where maybe as we hit technological rock bottom here and we see ourselves, our world as we know it being undone by our own technological endeavors that maybe that's the moment when we could actually listen to something besides our own technological obsessions, that we could actually hear some voice from the Uber Umwelt that goes beyond just our insistence on dominating nature. That's really nice. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. It made me think of, uh, there's something in there. Luther and, you know, the yeah, there was a resonance with a sort of death of God, right? And I was like, well, the death of God must continue. It's a sort of like... Um, Luther take on on the death of God and process theology at the same time. Yeah, we, we're gonna have to ride the death of God all the way down, right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, and I think that so when you read Heidegger's question concerning technology, like like people I've known who've been really into the, to Heidegger, you know, like they, you know, wrote their dissertations on Heidegger is very clear. Like like the human way of being in the world is in some sense technological. Like this is what we do. We extend ourselves into our environment. This is one of the reasons why we've been so successful as a species. The problem is, is Prometheus is a trickster god, right? There's this kind of irony built into human nature that the very thing that's like made us great is also going to be our undoing. But we can't just decide against human nature. So Heidegger thinks, you know, the saving power is only where the greatest danger is. We're going to have to ride the tech thing all the way down to the bottom. And then maybe humanity will be in a position to be saved, right? As he says, you know, God could save us, like something could speak to us again. Or a UFO might speak to us. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's UFO. I mean, maybe it's like literally optically the UFO is speaking to us. Or maybe it's that in the UFO, the fact that we're, we're seeing these things shows that the anxiety has gotten to a point that we're ready to listen to something else, finally. Right? That we're getting over our humanism. Well, I hope you're right. I, ho I hope so, too. Right. I think that's but, a good place to leave the conversation. Is there something else you want to add there? No, no, I'm good. Thank you. No, I really, I love this conversation, really appreciate it. I would love to have you back to talk about your, your other book, Thinking About Thinking, because sure. I did uh, get a fair way through in that, uh, through that, and if you're, if you're up for it, I'd love to have you back. I would only want to do it. Uh, that would be wonderful. It'd be an honor to do it. 
uh, Logan, again, I love what you guys are up to, and I and I think I think thinking about thinking would kind of resonate with with your your overall project too. So we should do it. Awesome. Well, thank you, thank so, you so much. much. That's my yeah. line, Justin. <laughs> and, and, and for our, our, our listeners, again, um, James Madden's newest text is The Unidentified Flying Hyper Objects, UFOs, Philosophy, and the End of the World. Uh, you should definitely check it out. It is a wonderful, quick, accessible read and a great introduction to all of these ideas. Um, thank you so much. Have a good one. You bet. Thank you. Thanks for Thanks, listening. Jim. Yep. Later, man.